When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's talk hoops. Let's talk crossovers. Let's talk downs. Let's talk hoops. Let's talk rumors. Let's talk opinions. Let's talk truth. Let's talk future. Let's talk present. Let's talk past. Fundamentals and flash. Me running the flow. Stanko running the show like a young Steve Nash. I'd like to welcome all of you to the Great Point Podcast. This is The Great Point Podcast. I'm Adam Stanko. Before we get into our discussion with today's terrific guest, wanted to remind you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. We've got some outstanding guests and interviews coming up in the next few weeks, and subscribing is the best way to make sure you don't miss any of them. Today, I am welcoming back a good friend of the podcast, ESPN.com, Cleveland Cavaliers beat writer Dave McMiniman. You can find Dave on SportsCenter basically every night during the NBA season, and he is one of the best basketball writers in the country. Even though he's a good friend of mine, I sincerely believe that. Dave, welcome back to the Great Point Podcast. I am glad to be back, Adam. Good to talk to you in the, I guess, the the biggest dearth of NBA or uh, NBA season for sure. We got the Olympic uh, basketball to get us through the summer, I guess. Yeah, to get us through the summer. Yeah, usually this is the time when it's really dead for the NBA. So at least we're getting um, some games. Uh, Dave, I I want to go back though. NBA Finals. Obviously, you saw it firsthand the entire season for the Cavs, while everyone else was keeping an eye on the Warriors, you kept saying in the background, like, let's not count these these Cavaliers out. And obviously, we, we all remember the comeback from, from 3-1 down. But Dave, I'm curious, who on the Cavs realistically thought they could win it when they were down 3-1? to There's a lot of people on that team, actually, who believe they could win it. Uh, I had a conversation with Teron Liu late night after they lost Game 4 uh, around... 2 a.m. in the morning. I'm still at Quicken Loans Arena. Uh, he calls me up. Uh, we were texting about a story I was working on on Kevin Love, who had kind of poured his heart out to me after game four, saying, what more can I do? Uh, I'm sacrificing for this team, and, and people still aren't accepting what I bring to the table. So I was asking Ty if he had any contributions for that story, and then he just called me up, and, and he said, listen, everything's right there for the taking. We know how to beat this team. We are putting ourselves in positions to win and just not executing. And so that's one person I point to. I, of course, point to general manager David Griffin, who woke up the morning after game four, literally laughing and giggling. Uh, his wife said, what, what's wrong? What, what's going on there? He said, we're going to win. <laughs> it, it, it's ridiculous. We're going to win. We're going to be the only team to come down from 3-1. We're going to be the only team to beat Golden State Warriors three games in a row. We're going to be the only team to break a championship drought for more than 50 years in Cleveland sports history. 
uh, but we're going to do it. Uh, and he truly believed it. And it was a trickle-on-down effect from there. There was a uh, text message chain that was led by LeBron James where he said as much to his teammates saying, fellas, we got to win game five, then we're back home, and then we take care of business at home, and then we go back to game seven and, and complete the task at hand. So it, it sounds ridiculous. It probably sounds revisionist history to tell all these stories, but they did occur in the moment, and, and uh, you know, it would have been wasted breath and misplaced faith had they not completed the comeback. But now that you look back at it, you say, wow, these guys never gave up on themselves. It's really interesting. It's funny, too, about the revisionist history part. I know um, Rick Neuheisel, the former Pac-12 football coach, he had coached at UCLA and, and Washington as a head coach, but he was at, at Colorado as an assistant coach when Cordell Stewart had that Hail Mary play, some people might remember, against Michigan. And before that play, Neuheisel had told me that he was running up and down the sidelines telling everyone, hey, we're going to come back, we're going to win this game, we're going to complete a Hail Mary here, we're going to win this. After it happened, everyone thought that, you know, here he was, this Nostradamus guy who could predict the future, and they all believed in him. And what he didn't tell them was that every time he was ever coaching a team and got down in that kind of situation, he always said that to the team, and it never came true. So he <laughs> knew eventually that it, at one point it would. But it really sounded like the David Griffins of the world and the Tyron Lues and certainly LeBron, it, it really did sound like when – those guys have been talking about it since then that they that they really really did believe that that this team was going to come back. Do you think that was because of what they had seen in the first few games or was it more a case of who they were just as an organization? Well, I I think they felt like they fell flat on their face up in the bay in games 1 and 2. They saw them completely dominate them in game 3 for the most part. I mean, Clay Clay Thompson had a, had a decent game, but outside of him, uh, the Cavs controlled it. And Game Four, they had a double-digit lead in the second half, and and you know kicked it away, and basically succumbed to the pressure when Golden State started breathing down their their neck a little bit. They didn't play their game, so they had evidence there that over the four games, even though it was three-one, they felt like it should have been two-two, if not three-one, in their favor. And then beyond that, it was. What are we here for? What do we put this team together uh, for? What was the last, uh, whatever, 20 months? Uh, what was it worth it? What, what was the, the purpose of LeBron leaving Miami and Kevin Love leaving Minnesota and, and, and acquiring guys like Richard Jefferson, who was taking financial sacrifices to try to win a championship? Uh, if we aren't here to, to complete this task, then you know what do we have left to believe in? And I think that really fueled them. Uh, it doesn't. You don't always find guys that believe in destiny, that believe in fate, that have that kind of reverence to them, that sense of historical perspective. Uh, perspective. But this group did, and they used that to give them a chance to enter into Game Five with the proper mindset, rather than feeling like this is a inevitability, this is a formality and we're going home early uh, to end our season. And because of that, they had the proper mindset to be able to do something spectacular, though. They still needed to have the first time in NBA Finals history where two teammates scored 40-plus points in Game 5 with Kyrie and LeBron. If that doesn't happen, they don't win that game. 
Um, they still had things like Draymond Green's suspension. They still had things like Andrew Bogut's season-ending injury. <laughs> so there were things that went in their, their favor once they had that belief. I mean, th- they believed they were going to come back and win the series with Draymond in there, with Andrew Bogut in there, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they certainly had a couple things go their way at that point that made it a little bit easier. I want to talk specifically about LeBron. Uh, game seven, watching in person the first half, there was just a level of calmness from LeBron. And probably I had seen it just in the press conferences leading up to game seven. There was this just ease about him, this poise, which having watched LeBron his entire career, and Dave, you and I can get into it. We, we, we've discussed it before. But we saw him at the beginning at, at ABCD camp going into his junior year and, and watched the, the growth all the way through. But there was a level of ease with LeBron James in Game 7, the first half of which, that I hadn't seen maybe before. And, and you saw a lot more of LeBron in, in the NBA than I have. But watching him, it seemed to me, as a, a guy who has studied the game for a long time, it seemed to me that he was basically trying to get his teammates involved so that the moment wouldn't be too big for them and get their confidence up. Am I wrong? No, I think calmness is the exact adjective that was used when I spoke on the court with Phil Handy, the uh, player development coach for the Cavs, prior to Game 7. You know, I get to the arena super early. I'm amped just like the players are for the opportunity to cover a game like this. So, you know, Phil is there even before the players are ready for his services, so we're kind of just shooting the breeze on the bench. And, you know, I'm just asking about everything. What's it been like? What What's this player like? What's this player like? And and LeBron, I'm like, what's his, his influence been like uh, over the last week or so when, when you've won these last two games to force a Game 7? That's what he said. He, he's been calm. Uh, he, I think he embraced the moment. I think if you look back... And I can't get completely inside LeBron's head, but I spoke to him a little bit about this after Game 7, and then he spoke um, to Lee Jenkins of Sports Illustrated also about this, that everything that he had done, not just in the two seasons after returning to Cleveland, but literally his entire basketball life, which is really his life, (laughs) his entire 31 years on this planet, was leading up to that moment, leading up to that challenge, and he felt completely prepared. So someone, if you put in the type of work that that he does, he doesn't cut corners, he's in the weight room, managing his body, he's managing his diet, uh, he is watching film, he is doing things outside of basketball to balance his life in terms of spending time with his family, doing group dinners and things with his teammate, reading books, watching movies, listening to music, basically enriching himself as a person the point where he felt he deserved this opportunity and he had done everything that would make it possible to do something that had been impossible. No team coming back from 3-1 in the finals other than one other team, but it certainly wasn't against a team that had won 73 games in a regular season. So <laughs> I, I think that was, or that is, uh, the apt way to describe the mentality he brought into it. And now... I think that had an influence over the entire team. 
but I think Teron Liu, another guy whose basketball journey had led him to that point where he felt the confidence in his preparedness. And, you know, the beauty of having a 15-man roster is that some guys, I'm sure, felt calm. Some guys felt antsy. You know, some guys uh, felt angry <laughs> for being uh, underestimated. You know, there was certainly, I would say, a level of, of, of rage and anger to Kyrie Irving's game because he resents um, the the gap in the perception between him and Steph Curry. Um, so you add up all of those approaches, um, it, but but the one kind of overriding one being LeBron's calming influence. And, and again, I, I just think the, the Cavs, whether they believed they were going to win the series deep down in, in their bones, I don't know. But they they got themselves to a point where they could win game five. And then if you could win game five, you can extend the series and then and all sorts of things are, are possible. Yeah, the cool part about that that calmness uh, about LeBron was it almost seemed like you're watching a guy who was, you know, in a in a dream state when, you know, you ever fall asleep and then all of a sudden you can control sort of the dream around you when you know that you're actually that you're asleep. It's it's a, a really cool feeling. And I, I sort of felt that watching LeBron as though, well, I'm going to conserve some energy. I'm going to get these guys set up. And we're going to be just fine. And that kind of confidence with one of the greatest players who's ever played was so unreal to see. Um, Dave, I know you mentioned to me in the past about, you know, LeBron being stunned and in 2015 when, when Steph won his first MVP and LeBron had even missed a bunch of games and then, and then this past season, Steph won MVP unanimously, and, and a lot of people had said, you know, oh, LeBron is certainly motivated by that. But I've also seen a quote from you recently talking about how there's been other, there was other motivation for LeBron. Right. Well, I mean, he hinted at it last year during the finals, excuse me, 2015 during the finals, that, that you know, he had all the motivation he needs. Uh, I guess people were asking him about, um, you know, what it would be like to win the finals. Uh, with a depleted roster, with Kevin Love out with the shoulder, Kyrie dealing with the knee and being out, and then you know there was other guys, you know, Delavatova and Ivan Shumpert were both maybe 50% of their physical capacity as well. And he was asked if that was something, you know, the, the fact that he could lead a depleted group uh, would some of that motivates him. And he said, mm, I got I got enough motivation already. And again, people leap to okay, it's number 30 on the Golden State Warriors, the little the prince of the NBA <laughs> that people are gravitating to or towards over the king in LeBron. Uh, but finally, and I worked on him, I, I would say I had at least four or five conversations uh, from the time the 2015 finals ended to the time the 2016 finals ended about what's that secret motivation. Like we were in, I think, Madison Square Garden for an early like November game this past season. And he mentioned that he keeps notes on his phone uh, of, you know, season goals and then career goals. And, uh, and I'm like, come on, you got to show me your phone. man. like after the reporter said <laughs> dispersed, I'm like, cause I know that secret motivation's on there too. So just come on, just let me see it. Like I, I'll, I won't tell anybody I, that didn't work. And uh, maybe a couple of months later, actually my dad had brought it up to me. He said, you know, did he ever tell about that secret motivation? I was like, you know what? No. And I haven't brought it up 
with him recently, so I like used the dad angle. I was like, hey, uh, LeBron, I was talking to my dad, and he wants to know <laughs> it didn't work. Um, and then after the Toronto series in the Eastern Conference Finals, that was the last time I asked him about it before the NBA Finals, and, and he said we get we walked out of the tunnel together at the Air Canada Center after you know he he was just as good as he was in the NBA Finals. I think he might have been even better in the Eastern Conference Finals this year. Uh, you know, just completely dominating all aspects of the game while shooting close sixty percent from the field. I think maybe even over sixty percent from the field. My memory's failing me a little bit here. I mean, as efficient as you can be in the modern NBA, you know, where efficiency matters, while having the kind of traditional NBA optics of thirty plus points and ten plus rebounds and close to ten assists. Um, and he said, you know, I'll tell you if we get four more wins. So, okay, obviously they, they get to game seven. They get the win. I asked him in the post-game press conference, like, all right, <laughs> you don't want to tell me. So what what is it? He goes, I'll tell you one-on-one. So uh, I followed him basically that night in Oracle. Uh, he went onto the court to do a post-game interview with NBA TV um, as he was leaving the court. He went to had a, a brief conversation with Bill Russell, uh, which was was a pretty neat thing to be a fly on the wall for. Um, made his way through the tunnel uh, with his kids, go to the post game portrait room and took some portraits with his family and and, and the starters and, and anybody who wanted to you know capture this moment in time with LeBron. He was posing for, and then you know finally he has to make the walk back to the locker room to shower and change and get on a flight to go to Vegas to celebrate their championship. And so this is my time. I get about five minutes with them. And uh, <laughs> I was like, all right, <laughs> so what is it? And he actually starts to tell me, and he goes, wait a second, wait, wait, wait. So he goes, and he has a publicist who he, he's been working with for a long time, who he trusts, and, and I have a good working relationship with his publicist as well. And he kind of has one last conversation with the publicist, um, just to be like, "All right, are we doing this? Okay, all right, no turning back. I'm going to tell Dave." And uh, Miami, when he left Miami after giving four years of his prime, four straight Finals appearances, two NBA championships, someone on the Miami Heat staff, and, and he, he, some, not just one person, people on the staff told him he was going to be making the biggest mistake of his career to leave Miami at that point to go to Cleveland. And um, he was really hurt by it. Now, you wouldn't name names. I think just about anyone who's heard this story by now is you know, assuming it's Pat Riley, and, and you know, I, I'm in that camp. I, I imagine Pat was one of the, the names here. But it, he just felt taken for granted, and he felt uh, that – he wasn't being viewed as a human. He was being viewed as an asset and a basketball player. And rather than to see the uh, the big picture here, that like where would your franchise be had he not come to you in the first place? You know, you'd, you'd most likely still be stuck on that that one championship as a franchise from 2006. Instead, you have four more finals appearances. You have two more championships. And if you had paid any attention to LeBron as, as a person over those four years, you knew the draw that Ohio and Northeast Ohio and Akron Cleveland area has on him still. And you know that it's an unfinished part of, of his legacy that he wanted to take care of. So um, he carried that with him. <laughs> he carried that with him for, for two years. And uh, it wasn't just the release of, you know, being a 13 year NBA player and finally 
winning one for Cleveland and you know, erasing some of the demons from the decision, it was getting some revenge on the people in Miami who uh, you know didn't believe in him. Dave, we want to get to the legacy part of all that in a in a moment, but just following up on that, how much was was hearing that a surprise to you, a guy who has been around LeBron quite a bit over the last couple of years? Yeah, you know what, I, I, I wasn't because if you tease something that often, or you know, you you think there's some meat to it, but I didn't. I had my guesses, and I had some conversations with people who know LeBron quite well the last couple of years, and I knew that the Steph Curry thing was a real thing, and then that would be a remaining, uh, you know, uh, potential motivation because of the fact they were playing the Warriors again for the second straight year in the finals. And then I, I thought maybe there was something in terms of, you know, just inspiring the people of Akron and the youth of Akron and, and his you know, uh, charitable efforts. Um, he he really does take that stuff to heart. So, uh, you know, there could have been some secret pledge that a business had made, you know, that, you know, should LeBron win a championship that, you know, some uh, Cleveland area business, Sherwin-Williams, you name it, was going to pledge X amount of dollars to, you know, his youth foundation, which actually ended up having happened later. Sherwin-Williams pledged, I think, $150,000 for LeBron James Family Foundation. But I thought maybe that was, also potential for what this was. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I found out, there was like a very human kind of raw emotion there. Um, uh, I could understand it. You know, I think life comes down to relationships and um, the worst type of relationship are the ones where you feel taken for granted. And so um, I thought it was a very relatable moment for a guy that, that you know, sometimes has a hard time I think one of the reasons why maybe he's not embraced as much as his basketball talents would suggest he should be uh, is because some people do have a hard time relating to him. But I thought that was a very relatable moment. Yeah, definitely. There's zero doubt in my mind that that what we've watched over the past couple of years with LeBron is not just his maturation, but just the idea that he's sort of been open and revealing about who he is and what he thinks about and what drives him as as a person. You know, it's funny, we always make the comparisons, and I'm about to go into the MJ part, but we talk about, you know, the superstars of the past, but we didn't really know a lot about, about Larry Bird. There were perceptions and what we thought was driving him and things that happened in his past and his father committing suicide or you know, we sort of knew about where Magic Johnson grew up and that kind of thing. But we didn't know those guys as intimately as we know LeBron James. People have been watching him from all over, all walks of life, since he's been 15, 16 years old. And it's been remarkable to me just how human he has been, you know, for all the knocks of the decision and the mistakes he's made from a public relations standpoint. But just in terms of how revealing he's been and just how much of a normal, quote unquote, person he is, has been the, the shocking part to me. And I know you've been able to watch that. As far as the legacy goes, Dave, and I'm, I'm curious about this, obviously, a lot of headlines, you know, this summer with him talking about chasing the ghosts of Jordan and uh, you just mentioned, you know, he's talking to Bill Russell, the greatest winner in NBA history after after the NBA finals. The idea of legacy, what does he think he needs to do 
in order to overtake that top spot as the greatest of all time. It's interesting. Certainly he knows the way people think about the game. It, the, the, the championship number is so important in that conversation. And as great as three is and as great as the third was getting it in Cleveland, it's, he's still only half a Jordan. And, and so that's, and he doesn't have half his career left. I mean, this guy is a bionic man, and he's his body is unlike anything we've ever seen before. J.R. Smith suggested to me this year, and I had a hard time arguing, that, that he may be the greatest athlete ever to live. Um, and, mm-hmm. I mean, if he's not the greatest athlete, he's certainly up there in that conversation. His body's going to, knock on wood, allow him to play maybe as long as a career as a, you know, a KG or a Kobe or a Duncan and, and still be effective at that point, you know, 18, 19, 20 years left. So he's not like he's leaving anytime soon, but let's just say he has five more years. He would need to get three more championships in five years to tie Jordan. So that's, that's a tall task, you know, despite how stacked the Cavs are instead of for success, that that's a hard one. Uh, it's funny. He can't control how people view the conversation. Um, but he hopes that by doing what he does, at some point the body of work will be so overwhelming if people actually take a step back and rather look at six for six in the NBA finals for Michael Jordan. Sure. That's great. Um, but Jordan never made the final six straight years like LeBron's done right now, mm-hmm. going on for a seventh. Um, LeBron's already made the finals seven times. Uh, so LeBron, I mean, that's that's more times making it for a chance to win the championship than Jordan did. And it's funny, Jordan's legacy is helped by losing to the Detroit Pistons in the Eastern Conference Finals before he was ready to win the championship. Whereas LeBron James's legacy is ultimately hurt by upsetting the Pistons in the playoffs right. in 2007 right. and getting to uh, you know a Spurs team that was you know clearly superior to the Cavs and that's that's just it's funny that's people just looking at a one statistic rather than the entire body of work so you know again the way I think and, and I've I've spoken to him about that point in particular that uh, it's funny it gets taken for granted. It, what he's doing, you know, just by virtue of not having the championship, it gets looked down upon. I even heard someone this summer speaking about Dwayne Wade and his legacy in Miami. And, you know, Dwayne Wade has as many championships as LeBron. He has three. He has five finals appearances. So he has a better percentage. Mm -hmm. Um, But is, is that better? Or is it better to be the guy who... You know, when you look back at what he accomplished in 2014-2015, first year back in Cleveland, that team wasn't really a finals team. Certainly the the team that he had by the end of it, you know, the team that he beat Chicago with, that wasn't really a finals team. Um, Certainly the team he got there in 2007 with, that wasn't really a finals team. Uh, I think the only series that he lost where he would have been considered the favorite was the first year in Miami where they lost to the Dallas Mavericks. But, you know, when you get further and further away from that, you, you kind of look at more like that was Dirk Nowitzki's time. And he's also coached by 
Rick Carlisle, who many people believe is, is maybe the most intelligent coach in the NBA today, and, and he had other veterans around him, guys like Pedro Stojakovic and Jason Kidd, who seemed destined to win a championship to make up for you know running into the buzzsaw that was the Lakers earlier in their career. So it, the more you give context and perspective to LeBron's career, he's a lot closer to Jordan than I think people realize because they get stuck on that six for six number. I think you've nailed it. I mean, the, the six for six idea is seems to be the counter that everyone uses when they want to downplay what LeBron has done. It's almost like we can't have the conversation because Jordan went six for six in the finals and that's the end of the discussion. And you bring up all these unbelievable rebuttals. I mean, the idea that, you know, Michael Jordan scored 63 points against the Celtics in the playoffs. Like, okay, well, he did it in an overtime game and the Bulls lost that series. But again, for some reason, what Jordan did later in his career going out like he did. And let's also keep in mind, we have to reevaluate things when you look at the fact that LeBron beat this Warriors team, which everyone thought was unbeatable, a team that, you know, won 73 games this year and, you know, had the unanimous MVP and just a stacked roster. And not to mention, LeBron loses the finals last year, and it's probably the best individual finals performance I saw in my lifetime, and they lost. So to just gauge greatness upon winning percentage in the finals, like you said, is just such a, a narrow viewpoint. It's it's uh, stunning to me. And, um, and to look at the opponents, quick to interrupt, but yeah, the Warriors, that one certainly has to get a lot of weight. But the Spurs team he beat, too, yes. was a historically great team, you know, on the verge of obviously they got their revenge and beat the Heat in five games and, and had one of the best finals performances any team's ever turned in. But you have three Hall of Famers there on that Spurs team. Maybe a fourth. We'll see where Kawhi Leonard's career uh, bears out. And Greg Popovich, who, you know, it, certainly he's in the holy trinity of best coach of all time, along with Red Auerbach and Phil Jackson. He beat that team, too. The teams Jordan beat were, you know, a Lakers team past its prime. Uh, you know, a Suns team that was lightning in a bottle, very good team for sure, but, you know, a Blazers team that was formidable, a Jazz team that never won anything. You know, again, LeBron did some real work. <laughs> he, he beat two teams that, that won championships, two championship teams in the Warriors and the Spurs. Um, Jordan certainly beat the championship team in the Lakers, but that was, you know, I think most people would say and agree that they, they were kind of past um, their moments at that point. Um, I, I, again, I'm not to diminish what Jordan accomplished. I just think there is context you can add to LeBron's career that, that makes this a lot closer race than I think people realize. I agree with that. And the other thing that you touched upon was the idea that some of these Cavs teams that LeBron was playing on early on his career weren't quote unquote finals teams. And I've always thought if he doesn't go to Miami, you know, he gets crushed for it and understandably to a certain extent. Fine. We all agree with that. But if he doesn't make that move to Miami, are the Cavs ever even able to put together the kind of roster that they were able to put together because he went to Miami? It's it's almost like 
he forced their hand in a way. And then, you know, he left because they weren't going to win or at least win a lot of championships. And that's what we're we're judging people's resumes on our, our NBA finals appearances, but more importantly, wins. So if that's the case with the roster that he was playing with, he doesn't end up getting a chance to play with Kyrie Irving unless he leaves mm-hmm. Cleveland. Right. And you got to win with top-level teammates. It's just not done where a guy, he could be Carmelo Anthony. I mean, Howard Beck wrote a good, really very good piece for Bleach Report last year, diving into the friendship between Carmelo and LeBron and, and also Dwayne Wade and Chris Paul. And maybe they, they harbor some aspirations while playing together someday in the NBA. But it spoke about kind of the parallel existence that Melo and LeBron have lived uh, in the NBA Mm-hmm. Where yes, LeBron is a better than player player than Carmelo. Anyone would can see that. But it, it, it under the different circumstances, LeBron could have had the career where he's never winning anything and just seen as as a bit of a waste of talent. And Carmelo could have been the guy playing with the Pistons from the start and playing with talent and winning and et cetera, et cetera. And we would have viewed both these guys' careers completely different. So um, winning is a very important thing, and if you put in the amount of time that he does to try to make it possible every year and and to you know deal with that disappointment for i guess it was seven straight years when he left my, uh, for Miami in the first place if you think about the person if you think about the process if you were trying to imagine envision yourself going through the same thing it's very understandable what he did and then i think you could go back and you know certainly we could dive into the decision that was had had some problems about it PR wise. Um, but you know the Cavs, if the Cavs trade for Amari Stoudemire instead of Anton Jameson, maybe he wins before he leaves, and maybe everything's different. You know, it wasn't like the Cavs made every single right move uh, before he made his initial exit. Dave, the other thing about this is that what LeBron gets crushed for is going to play on a super team and that he started this whole trend of super teams and this idea of super teams. Well, we look back historically. Magic Johnson was very close with Buss and forcing management's hand on coaching decisions, personnel decisions, also getting a chance to play with Kareem. Uh, James Worthy wasn't too shabby himself. Byron <laughs> Scott, that whole loaded roster that the right. Lakers were playing with. People talk about, oh, well, Burden wouldn't have done that. Well, the whole front court Bird played with is in the Hall of Fame. So is Dennis Johnson. <laughs> they bring in Bill Walton as a sixth man. And right. Michael Jordan, I mean, aside from the fact that the Bulls end up with, with Scottie Pippen and was huge for his career, but Tony Kukoc was the best player internationally the best player in the world outside of the United States, and they had a chance to bring him to the Bulls, which is unfathomable. I mean, thinking about that on one of the top teams in the NBA right now, if they brought in the best international player in the world, as it was structured back then. So all those guys had a hand in in getting great talent, to your point, that you cannot win it on your own, regardless of how people want to um, change the way they think history has has played out. And it's funny, this is basketball. I mean, think of AAU. Like, we both grew up outside the Philly area. You know, Tim Thomas Plays was one of the big programs in Jersey. Mm-hmm. And you saw people who 
didn't live that close to where they practiced stuff like playing on the team because it was they it would suck up all the best area talent. We think of NCAA, you know, every year recruiting classes are are rated, you know, five star class, et cetera, et cetera, and praised. The final, I mean, the Fab Five are considered one of the most revered teams in in the history of basketball. What is that? That's guys coming from different areas to play together <laughs> to put their talents together. So why why in the NBA is it so frowned upon? I don't. It, where in the NBA it's it's grown men making their decisions based on family and financials. <laughs> like it, right. it, it's it's it, there's a disconnect where I, I just don't get why on on lower levels where it, it's on some level you would say it'd be less pure um, and and more manipulated by the people bringing the players to those teams because there's more people in in the young players' ears. Uh, the player can't necessarily make all decisions for himself. It's done then, and and it's digestible to people, but it's done on the pro level where these are grown men making decisions for themselves as a grown man, and it gets you know struck down upon. <laughs> it, it, it's kind of funny. Oak Hill Academy, the prep circuit, right. AU, as you, as you mentioned. Yeah, I remember... Uh, the Atlanta Celtics had a team of their front line at one point was Randolph Morris, um, Dwight Howard, and Josh Smith. I mean, you had three future NBA players. Two of them would be, you know, all stars. And then Javaris Crittenden is is one of their guards, another NBA player. And I mean, there are countless AAU teams that were just fantastic. But but you're right. You you look through. I mean, just Oak Hill Academy on its own. You know, just restacking every year, and everybody. I mean, and and the thing is, and and this goes somewhat to the to the Durant situation now. Anyone who has played basketball competitively and who understands the game, basketball is just more fun to play when you're playing alongside guys who are knowledgeable about the game, have high basketball IQs, that play hard. I mean, it's it's finding the right fit for you person. I mean, Dave, you're a shooter. I mean, guys that have, have played with you and hopefully we're going to see you in some uh, celebrity games that, you know, we've, we've seen some in the LA celebrity game yeah. circuit and the uh, entertainment league, but, but you're a shooter. So if you have a point guard that can uh, drive and kick, you love playing with guys like yeah, that absolutely. or a big man who attracts a lot of attention. And again, we're, we're taking this now to the highest level, like you said, but, but it's true at all, at all levels of the game. Guys want to play with other guys who are going to make them better and who are going to make the game more fun. Mm -hmm. and, and on some, again, this was getting back to the LeBron choosing to leave Miami, excuse me, choosing to leave Cleveland in the first place for a chance to win, a chance to play with more talent. Uh, it's not, okay, again, these players are, are really well paid and it, it's a very good life. Um, don't get me wrong. I would I would trade being a beat writer to being NBA superstar <laughs> any day. But for someone like Kevin Durant, it's not necessarily an easy existence. So there's a lot weighing on you. Um, and if you have the opportunity under an open market to make a decision as an adult to join players and and still, you know, get paid handsomely and have a chance to play with better talent around you. I mean, it's like it's like a logical decision there. Uh, it is. It is. And, I I, and, and, I go both ways, Dave. I because I, I'm completely with you. I, I I talk out of both sides of my mouth because I think the same thing. If I gave nine years to small market organizations in Seattle and then 
in Oklahoma City. They they move me after I show you know serious potential in Seattle. Like okay, I'm going to be a part of this franchise. Franchise moves to Oklahoma City. Give nine years of my career, and now I have the chance to go play where I want and with whom I want, and I'm giving up money to do it. So people right. can't say this is about the money. You're giving up substantial amount of money in Kevin Durant's case. I I totally am on board with that, and I think he has the right to do whatever he sees fit. On the other hand, I also there's a part of me that burns and says, "Man, I I wish you would stay in your situation." But then again, he's also playing with Russell Westbrook, and I I don't know what his his relationship with Russ was like, and whether that was an enjoyable experience, and whether it was an enjoyable experience that they never really trusted their teammates and for good reason and and the fact that they couldn't sign any free agents even if they wanted to bring someone else in there anyway so i i get all that did what is what did lebron think about durant going to okc well the only thing he said on record thus far is that he's certainly motivated to get next year started um <laughs> he said that to lee jenkins a uh, nice piece by Lee about a month ago or a couple weeks ago where it was kind of checking in LeBron a month after the championship and, and you know, how his life has gone. Um, he just announced uh, this week on Uninterrupted, his social media platform for, uh, you know, Turner Sports and Bleach Report that, you know, he wants to get the band back together. That was in announcing his decision to return to the Cavs on a, on a three-year deal with the player option for the third. Um, I've... I made a reach to uh to him to try to get further comment on on Kevin and um you know through my sources uh basically if I get part of him face to face I'll have a chance to to speak to him about that he's having a charity event next week uh at Cedar Point uh, it's an amusement park in in uh, Ohio so I'm going to check that out and hopefully have a chance to to talk to him there um but Speaking to other people on the Cavs, uh, not necessarily about their view of LeBron's view of the Warriors, but their view of the Warriors. Right. Uh, there's no fear. The Cavs, they, they were never really under the spell that the Warriors were under. Um, you know, it, it certainly frustrated them. It certainly tantalized the franchise. Uh, it certainly led to David Blatt being dismissed in January after the Warriors came to Cleveland and just, you know, took them to the woodshed. But there was no fear. There was no looking at their roster and saying, oh, they're so much better than us. They just didn't look at it that way. And, you know, everyone in the NBA respects Kevin Durant and knows what he can do. But they also know that they lost guys like Bogut and and uh Barbosa and and uh and I'm I'm blanking on um uh most spades. Uh, you know, these these guys were part of what they were able to accomplish there. And it's not gonna be an automatic that the, the Warriors are going to tear through the league. Um there's there's respect there and there's knowledge that most likely their smart players are gonna figure things out. But um it's not an easy equation to balance um, stars. And, uh, you know, there was times last year, I mean, the best regular season game last year was Warriors versus Thunder, where 
Steph Curry hit that 40-footer in overtime to win it at the buzzer. At halftime of that game, Draymond Green was threatening Steve Kerr, yelling at him. <laughs> Lisa Salters reported on it. Like, are we forgetting this? That was en route to the greatest regular season in team history. So now all of a sudden, Draymond Green is going to have a lesser role with Kevin Durant around. He's going to be okay with it. And he's not going to have Luke Walton, who is basically, by all accounts, his personal assistant coach, uh, not there anymore to keep him in check. I think there's some intrigue and in, uh, interest in, in ex- exactly what's going to go down in Golden State, whereas the Cavs felt like they've been through that. They've gotten over their drama. They've gotten over themselves. They've found like, a legitimate uh, you know, camaraderie and rhythm here. And so I think they're excited to continue uh, what they've established the last two years. With this Cavs Warriors rivalry, which could really ramp up over the next couple seasons, which is incredibly exciting. Everyone wants to talk Warriors. Cavs coming off this championship. Like you said, they're at a great state now in terms of their chemistry. You touched on the Kyrie Steph kind of rivalry within itself. What are Kyrie's feelings about Steph getting all this attention as this great scoring lead guard? He doesn't appreciate it. Uh, and again, I think Kyrie is, I sometimes have a hard time relating to him because he is, even though not that much younger than me, I'm 33, I guess he's 24. I guess that's a sizable gap, but but he he looks at things a lot different. <laughs> he's a, from a different generation. Um, and uh, maybe it's some of like, you know, you are beholden to certain things because, you, you know, um, you know, I I would respect a given person based on their name because you recognize you know they must have done something right to get to that point. Um, I think Kyrie looks at it more as like, well, why is that not me? Because I have all these XX X that I can do better than he does. And um, when Kyrie is engaged, and right now he is, uh, which is I think a very good thing for the Cavs that he's doing USA Basketball. It it shows that. Um, at this point in his life, you know, basketball is his most important passion. And I, you know, he's a guy who's not not a LeBron, not a Kobe in that sense, where it's the only thing that defines him. Um, but right now, I think that he's most excited about seeing just what he can do with this basketball thing. Um, you know, watch out, uh, because... I think he's in store for for a dynamite year. Uh, we saw it in 2014 coming off FIBA World Cup, where he was the MVP of that team, and you know he really established himself as one of the elite players in the NBA at that point. It wasn't just the promise of being a number one pick or a guy with great handles; it was a guy who could dominate a game. Uh, I think he's going to be in store for that this upcoming season. And again, he's found a balance with LeBron James, whereas now all of a sudden Steph Curry and Kevin Durant have to do that themselves. And I think right. you know, Kyrie will probably enjoy taking a step back and, and seeing them have to figure things out when, when he already has a little, little bit of a roadmap. You talk about that balance, and that's something that's really interesting to me is the on-court stuff. I mean, yeah, Kyrie is a fascinating guy. Sometimes he seems brooding, and then other times you see him at his basketball camp doing the running man with all the kids. and. <laughs> You know, it's like, oh, I love this. I love this guy. He's got sometimes he's a kid and then other times he seems so serious and he talks about his brand. And and then we see the commercials that he does and he he gets marketing opportunities. So there, there's no doubt about that. He's one of the 
most marketable players in, in the league. But just from an on-court perspective, it's really interesting because as a lead guard, you know, always it was thought of in the NBA that to be a true point guard and, and to win, you needed to have true point guard skills. You needed to be a coach on the floor. You needed to make other teammates better. You needed to set up the offense, drive, dish, uh, what have you. And we, we always saw that, whether it was, you know, even guys who could score from that position. Isaiah Thomas was a guy who set people up. Magic set people up. John Stockton, Chris Paul. And Kyrie is a different type of guy. I mean, in the finals alone, David, just want to run through his assist statistics in the in the finals. Game one, one assist. Game two, one assist. Game three, eight assists. Game four, four assists. Game five, six assists. Game six, three assists. And game seven, one assist. I'm so curious about Kyrie because I don't even know if my brain is able to handle this whole changing of the point guard position in the NBA. And people want to say positionless basketball. But point guard is still the one position where you have to be the quarterback and and at least initiate the offense. And the Cavs have this unique thing with Kyrie and LeBron James. So I guess my question is, as a point guard, is this who we can expect Kyrie to to always be? I think as long as he has the personnel around him, personnel around him, then yeah, uh, that they do right now, then this is what they want from him. Because again, one, he's not in a traditional situation. He has the best point forward ever to live and LeBron on his team and, you know, the best playmaker or outside of magic at that size. So that's unique. And then two, you know, so that yeah, if you're going to judge his assist purely by number, I mean, again, same reason why you shouldn't say, oh, Kevin Love's rebounds have gone down a couple since he was in Minnesota. Well, you know, he has other guys who got rebounds, guys like LeBron James. And then beyond that, I think you look at how they have guys like Kevin Love and Channing Fry. Um, you know, even when he plays with LeBron, he, he'll stay on the perimeter sometimes where, you know, he has the best handle in the league or, or one of the top two or three along with wall and Chris Paul and, and Steph Curry, where if he has one-on-one coverage and because, uh, you know, guys can't double because they have to stay attached to a guy on the perimeter. You know, he's a very efficient player just breaking a guy off the dribble and getting to the hoop at that point or drawing a foul and getting to the foul line. Um, so as long as the team is, is set up the way it is right now, um, yeah, he, he should be playing this brand of basketball. Now, if LeBron starts to get into his twilight years and starts to operate more out of the post, as some people have been calling him to do for years, um, you're going to need Kyrie to play more of a traditional point. And you're going to have to dump it down on LeBron and make sure you get those entry passes or you break it down and then look for LeBron with pocket passes. Um, we'll see when that evolution uh, is necessary to start occurring in Cleveland. The interesting part to me, Dave, was, and this is strictly from statistics standpoint, but anyone that was watching could could notice it as well. Eastern Conference semis. I'm going to throw some more numbers out at you. Averaged. This is Kyrie. Averaged 21 points a game, 6.3 assists. Eastern Conference Finals, 24 points a game, 4.5 assists, and the finals, 27 points a game, 3.9 assists. And in each of those series, his free throw attempts went up. So he was obviously attacking the hoop more. Right. And there is not a better finisher for 
a perimeter player, maybe not a better finisher in the NBA period. I don't care what size. For for like a non-dunker, yeah. Yes, yes. I mean, just right. a, fantastic at, at uh, finding a way to to finish like Tony Parker used to do too, getting in the lane and you'd think there's no way this guy's going to be able to score amongst the trees and, and he finds a way to do it. Rod Strickland used to be that way, that way as well. I guess what I'm curious about is this more geared to him scoring. Obviously each of those teams was different. Each of the coverages they were playing were different, but how much of this do you think is, them during the finals just sort of figuring it out like in other words is this what we what we saw in the finals like did a did something um you know did the light go on i I think part of it is is honestly and and the nba playoffs are so long so it it may sound like uh unless you remind yourself that they last two months that this is a little unrealistic but i think physically he was feeling the best he was feeling as the playoff was going on. He was literally getting stronger. Mm. Uh, and if you you know remember the timeline of his knee injury, like he didn't return to the court until late December, and that was he really didn't do any you know anything in terms of real basketball before that. Um, he did some light running starting in you know late September, and a lot of ball handling and shooting stuff. But you know, he was still working to a point to get his legs underneath him over that six months leading up to the finals. So I think that's a big part of it. I think it was a uh, confidence thing for sure because the Cavs played excellent basketball for the first three rounds, and he was getting the green light from Teron Liu to LeBron James to Kevin Love, uh, feeling good about what the team wanted him to do to exploit his talents. And I think the third thing is that the, the Cavs, I guess you want to talk about formula and what, is actually working with what they found. And again, I think a lot of teams would theoretically love to do this. So it's not, it's easier said than done, but they recognize that Kyrie and LeBron are two of the most efficient players in the entire NBA in fast break opportunities. Best way to generate those fast break opportunities is to play stifling defense and create steals, deflections and the like, or, or long defensive rebounds. that They immediately turn down to run outs on the defensive end. Uh, when they committed the defense at a high level, they started getting these scoring opportunities on the other end, and it was kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. One fed the other. These guys love to score. The only way, or the way they can score easiest and more often is to play more ferocious defense, and it kind of worked side by side. Now, in a playoff situation where you know that there's, an end in sight and you know I have to do this for a four minute burst and then I'm going to get a break and et cetera, et cetera. You stay in the moment. It's a lot easier to do that brand of basketball, uh, over an 82 game season. Um, I, I, I have a hard time believing that, that they'll have quite the same, uh, uh, maybe not understanding, but quite the same acceptance of, of maybe not having a, uh, quite as much balance in terms of passes and, and scoring for Kyrie Irving, but but still fundamentally, they view him as this hyper talented guy who can break his guy off the dribble and get them points. And uh, I don't think they begrudge him for exploiting that 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 talent. Yeah, I've uh, I've heard David Griffin talk about the idea that uh, even though everyone wants to look at at pace, the Cavs 
love to play fast, but they want to do it when, just like you described, they're getting opportunities, you know, live ball turnovers or, you know, quick shots or just forcing issues on the defensive end and that they're just incredibly efficient as a, as a fast breaking team. So, um, yeah, I guess over the course of a regular season, you know, you're not going to see that as much as, as, uh, certainly you're going to see it perfected in, in the playoffs when you get a chance, Dave, Kevin Love, you know, it's really remarkable. You did you did mention I me. Mean, we're talking about a guy who statistically put up some of the best numbers when he was in Minnesota that we've ever seen. I've had issues with Kevin Love throughout his career because I felt like during his time in Minnesota, there was a stretch where if you if you looked each year he was he was taking settling for more and more three point shots. Like he wanted to be a guy who wanted to stand out on the perimeter and shoot shoot shots. I mean the guy came into the league. Everyone talked about his crazy outlet passes and, you know, what he had done in his one season at UCLA, as well as being an all time great high school player when he was in Oregon. But when he was in Minnesota, it seemed like he was a stat first guy and a guy that, that wasn't necessarily about winning. He has made the ultimate sacrifice on a team with multiple superstars. He took a back seat and has seemed to take on, hey, I'll take on whatever whatever role you kind of give to me. We saw a different Kevin Love in the first quarter, game seven. He had four offensive rebounds and really set the the tone for that that whole game in the first quarter. How has he accepted this role as as third banana? And and I guess the second part of that is has he totally accepted it? Well I think to understand why it, it seemed to be such a struggle for him at first is to understand what the journey's been like for Kevin Love, you know, one, trying to get out, out from under the shadow of the family where he's not just the nephew of one of the Beach Boys or the son of an NBA player. So that's something that you know, he's trying to figure out an established value as Kevin Love. And then, yeah, he's, you know, he's the big kid with some skill, but he's the big kid. He's the beefy kid. And then trying to, you know, better himself to, you know, to do that. So then he found this sweet spot in his, you know, early 20s where now he's all of a sudden he's being viewed as Kevin Love, you know, he's you know Stan is his dad, not he's Stan's son and you know, et cetera. And he's nice. getting attention from women, you know, he's a bit of, you know, one of the consider one, you know, the more handsome guys in the league. Uh and he liked that and that was all the work that he'd put into his life, like okay, now I found like a persona that you know is 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 a reward for the work I put in. And then you go to Cleveland, and you have to, you know, all the things that he did to maintain that persona, like checking the the stat sheet at the end of every night, and you know, kind of the same way where you know uh, our average person would go to work and you know to prove that they went to work, you know, answer emails or punch the time clock he was making sure he had 20 and 10 and then all of a sudden that's taken away from you and you can't define your success on 20 and 10 anymore um, and you have to find a way to feel good about just making contributions here and there or, or having a good three quarters and then recognize that the, you know, the team went with a you know a small ball lineup and you know excuse me, the oppo- opposition did and um your guys are better off not playing you in the fourth quarter and having your ego be able to understand that 
you you did your job in three quarters. That was your job that night. Um, so it, it was a process, and I, I don't think it's a process that's ended for Kevin. Um, but now I spoke to some people around the Cavs about Kevin's summer, how it's gone, that you know he's working as hard as he ever has um, because he feels rewarded from being part of the success. And not just that, he found a role on that team where he was embraced for being who he is and he stopped taking himself so seriously. And, and you talk about guys like Channing Fry in particular and Richard Jefferson. They they finally made Kevin feel connected in Cleveland. Uh, it, it took about a year and a half of his Cleveland experience to really feel like, you know, I'm not just a mercenary for hire. I'm not just another talent that came elsewhere to try to make this thing happen. Uh, it is, I'm part of this culture People understand what I'm about. They understand what I bring. They understand why sometimes I am frustrated and moody because it's not an easy thing to go through. But at the end of the day, like it's it is kind of easy because it's better to to be on a team like this with the chance to win than be on a team that's destined for 35 wins. So it, it, he's I, I think he's someone from my perspective, and you know I'm never gonna pretend that as a media member I'm around these guys enough to know everything that's going on in their lives, but you know, we have a decent amount of interaction over the course of a season and I think he's he's just maturing. He's gone from a twenty five year old kid who defined himself one way to a guy who's becoming like a you know, late twenties like a man who I think understand what matters a little bit more now. So um I, I honestly think he he is set up for uh, a lot of success moving forward with, with the Cavs. Um, uh, this, and no, that's, that's still going to mean there's going to be games where they play a team with a matchup nightmare and he's going to sit. Um, but I, if he, again, focuses on all the other good stuff that he does not focus on the the rare occasion where he'll be sitting, uh, he'll be he'll be just fine. I've described him almost as a, a walking hypothetical question because we always t- toss out these hypothetical questions when it comes to NBA players. Like, would you rather be Kevin Love in Minnesota, a guy that's getting all this attention, putting up crazy numbers, being regarded as one of the best players in the league, all-star nods, all that kind of stuff, or actually be the guy that gets to win championships but you're not the first or second best player on on the team, but you're you're playing on a on an all time great team, and it, it's that that whole thing you were talking about before the comparison between you know the two class of 2003 draft guys in Carmelo and LeBron. Here's LeBron. I mean, is his greatness took Cleveland teams that didn't belong to be in the finals and took them to the finals, but they weren't going to win. And you know, would you would you rather be the guy? Or would you rather be the, the the third guy and be on a on a winning team? And um, you know, it's interesting to sort of see that uh, you know psychological experiment, kind of that social experiment, play out with with Kevin Love in in real time. Um, but also, I'm, I'm he, just he, go ahead. He, I just quick. He benefits from the LeBron halo as much as it's a deterrent to it too. Like now, because LeBron's on the team, there's. There's way more scrutiny, way more attention, et cetera, et cetera. But he has a chance to win. And ultimately, 
I mean, there you do have the danger of being the scapegoat type of guy. But but really, the pressure's on LeBron. I mean, Kevin Love, no one's going to be looking at Kevin Love's career and say, you know, you were, you know, you failed, so you're not one of the all-time greats. Like, I think he understands that, you know, he's destined to be a multi-time all-star, and now he won a ring, so he feels good about that. He's going to make a ton of money. Uh, that's kind of the path he's on. And that's okay. He doesn't. He wasn't gifted with all the physical uh, attributes necessary to, to put himself in the conversation as a top five player of all time. LeBron has that constant pressure of like, you better serve your talents, or you are going to be looked at as one of the wastes. And so, on some level, by being on a guy with Lebr- like LeBron, he escapes some of the pressure. And, and, you know, to, to think back like a summer ago, you know, had when he was a free agent, like had he gone to a place like Boston or New York or L.A., um, you know, I'm not so sure that's a better existence. To, I mean, yeah, I, I believe that all three management structures in place of those three teams, like they would have started to build a winner around him. But there's way more pressure day to day being the face of the franchise, I think. Um, than he has in Cleveland right now, and, and I think uh, it's it's a pretty good spot for him. Uh, I think he'll be able to to kind of feel appreciated here. Because uh, one, I mean, I know the national narrative still calls for him to be traded. I mean, there was stuff about Boogie Cousins uh, this summer um, for him. Uh, I, I think the local Cleveland market um, they appreciate what they have in Kevin, and, and I think that's that's good for him. You know, you bring up the idea of not having that pressure. I mean, I almost look at him like I look at, you know, Draymond Green. Totally different mm-hmm. players, but just in the sense that Draymond Green can have games where he goes one for eight and doesn't really contribute. Now, he finds other ways to contribute, but then again, so does Kevin Love. But Draymond Green can have these disastrous games on the on the offensive end, and yet no one says a word because they're only looking at the box scores of Steph Curry, and then maybe Clay Thompson. But, you know, those those guys that aren't on that first-tier level, um, and, and people will argue that Draymond Green is, and, and, and that's fine. But I'm just saying that it's easy then to have games that are bad games and not get crushed for it, whereas that's what makes LeBron so special in my eyes is, is you know, those absolute top-tier superstars uh, really have to perform every night. I mean, if they... You know, you have a LeBron James has a twenty-two point, eight rebound, six assist game, and he's crushed. Like, what happened tonight? And it's like I'm doing things that no one else has ever done before, and you guys are asking me what happened, and he handles it with grace, and that's what I, what I respect about him. Uh, Dave, before I let you go, I got to ask you just about about two guys. First of all, uh, that you've covered, Pau Gasol. Going to the Spurs, what are the Spurs getting it in Pow at this point in his career? I think a motivated and supported Pow is is a, a very good player for your team. He's very smart. He's an excellent passer. Um, clearly, last year, he lost that motivation in Chicago. And uh, I think a lot of that was, you know, he went to Chicago. He was courted by the entire league, it seemed, in that free agency period, um, he could have gone to OKC, maybe won a ring, but but he believed in you know the city, for one thing. But he but he believed in Tom Thibodeau, and uh, you know when they made the Hoiberg change, that that wasn't what he had 
thought he was signing up for. So you get to a team that you know has a coach he can respect, to a coach certainly who he can share a bottle of wine with, who understands that there's more to life than basketball, but you should still treat basketball the right way, who has always respected international players and what they bring to the table to the point where when you walk down the hallway at the AT&T Center to go from you know the general concourse to the catacombs of the Spurs locker room, they have Jacob Reese's Stonecutters quote printed in every language of the players that have played for the Spurs over the years. So, you know, there's you know, French for Tony Parker and Brazilian for Tiago Splitter and, um, you know, right on down the, down the line. And now you have Spanish for Powell, for sure. Um, it, it's a good opportunity. They still have young talent in Kawhi and Marcus Aldridge and, you know, Tony Parker, uh, you know, even as we're seeing in the Olympics this summer, still has something left to give. So uh, it, it makes sense. I was a little surprised. I thought maybe he would go and take a little bit more of a financial sacrifice to, um, you know, maybe maybe go back to L.A. I know he's, you know, still very much uh, attached there. Um, or maybe play for Phil in New York. Um, but uh, it, it makes sense. I, I think he's trying to have the best of both worlds where he, he made made some money um, and have a, have a chance to win. Like, no one's going to say that the Spurs don't have a chance next year. So um, it, it, it's, it, I think it makes sense in a lot, a lot of uh, respects. All right, now the other one. And this is for a buddy of mine, Justin. Uh, <laughs> Justin Waholtz, who's a serious, serious Lakers fan and, uh, you know, has been a fan of your work. Dave, since since uh, you're are we classifying the as a fan of my work, you know I, I'm using the term <laughs> loosely. I'm using yeah, the okay. term loosely. but uh, you know he, he would he would tweet at you and 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 yeah. make comments and and suggestions. We can at least sure. call them that. But he uh, he is really excited, maybe tempered excitement over uh, Timofey Mozgov coming to coming to the Lakers. So I wanted to hear from you for Justin. The best case scenario for Mozgov when he gets to the Lakers, what does he become? Well, quick to give you a perspective on what happened to him last year, it was disaster for him. He was uh, such a amazing fit at the end of the 2014-2015 season when they acquired him from Denver um, to the point where I, he had like a, a game of 28 points and 13 rebounds in the NBA Finals against the Warriors. So he was <laughs> a legitimate fit but then he had to get some um you know a knee scope in the off season he came back too quick uh he is someone who wants to do good wants to do the right thing wants to fit in and his confidence was was hurt um because lebron james is not an easy teammate to play with as, as encouraging as he can be he has certain standards and uh if you constantly fail to meet uh, you know the, the things that he's trying to coach you at, or try to get you better at. Um, he cannot be. He can be a little, a little difficult to play with. So, uh, Timo, you know, again, took him too long to get in shape. Part of that was the, the Cavs' fault. They should have probably shut him down rather than to try to play him as much as they did early on in the season. And then when he did come back, uh, he was still trying to get caught up to speed, and then his confidence was shot. Uh, Timo Mozgov. 
loves life. I think the LA lifestyle will suit him well. I think uh, the fact that there's no teammate there on that roster that's going to be such a heavy on him, uh, I think will will work for him as well. Uh, you know, you look at the way that that roster's set up. Um, you know, Julius is Julius Randall's a little bit of undersized, or certainly he is undersized at, at the four position. Um, to give him some support in the back line of a guy like Mozgov, I think he'll be appreciated um, for what he provides. And he's much more mobile than Roy Hibbert um, has ever been. Um, even when he's injured or when he was dealing with a knee pain last year, he gives you a lot more mobility than, than um, Roy Hibbert does. In, in the number, the sticker shock, <laughs> he, he's not going to put up – you know the PER that a guard making seventeen million dollars a year will, um, but he stays healthy and they support him and Lakers fans embrace him. Um, he can be a guy that can can help that team get moving in the right direction. And uh, yeah, I mean Lakers fans, it's it's a tough summer when you consider that there were some major names out there and they didn't acquire any of them. I, I understand that, but um, you know between Ingram and Mozgov, um, they their team got better, and and so you know we'll, we'll see if that'll be enough to save the Jim Bus Mitch Kupchak brain trust there because uh, the, the the clock is ticking on the guarantee that was made uh, a couple years back by Jim Bus. Mozgov, four years, sixty four million dollars, and you know I've been a fan of D'Angelo Russell's for quite some time. I think it'll be interesting to see what happens to him. And and Justin insists that Larry Nance Jr. is going to be the next great Laker. He has told <laughs> me to right. watch out on numerous occasions. So you write that one down, if you will, Dave. If he can, I mean, he's a hell of an athlete, and he's long, and he seems to get after it. Um, I, I like him. I, a great Laker? <laughs> I mean, we're talking about the Lakers. So, I mean, if you say he was going to be a great Minnesota Timberwolves and, you know, he'd be up there with Sam Mitchell, like, sure. But, I mean, great Lakers are like Elgin Baylor, <laughs> et cetera. So I, I might pump the brakes on that one a little bit. But I, I certainly like him. Um, I got a little D'Angelo Russell story that you might like. I just heard this the other day that he's um, walking through the, the gym um, FaceTiming with someone at the Lakers practice facility. And uh, one of the team staffers had the schedule that just came out. And uh, Tangelo was like, oh, what do you got there? He's like, oh, the schedule. He's like, oh, let me see that. He grabbed the schedule, scanned it real quick. And he's like, yo, we're going to bust your ass on November 13th. And then the staffer, like, got a glimpse of who he was FaceTiming with. It was Carl Anthony Towns. (laughs) 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 Again, uh, maybe getting back to the AAU generation or whatever. Um, you know these these guys in today's NBA. Um, they, it's a fraternity more so than it's a, a rivalry. Sometimes, D'Angelo Russell and Ben Simmons were high school teammates, and Joel go. Embiid went to the same high school before them. So, exactly, I think that's uh, the perfect way to put a bow on it. Dave, I I uh, as always cannot thank you enough for for the time, the great stories, the insight, and um, yeah, man, just love talking to you. Absolutely, Adam. And uh, yeah, I mean, we're doing the finals forensics about two months later. <laughs> Sorry it took so long to get it done, but I enjoyed it. Oh, as 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 always, we'll have a lot to talk about once this season uh, pops off. But check out Dave McMiniman at Mick10 on Twitter. All the fans, just like my buddy Justin, can reach out and tell him how much you uh, 
you love Dave. Uh, Dave loves to hear from from his fans. So, so Dave, uh, enjoy the rest of your summer. All right, you too, Adam. So again, that's Dave McMiniman. Always enjoy having Dave on the podcast. You can catch him on Twitter at Mc10. You can catch me, Adam Stanko, on Twitter at Naismith Lives, and you can catch this podcast on Twitter at Great Point Pod. As I told you off the top of the show, we'd love if you could subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Give us a rating; that always helps. And uh, check out Yao Jis, who does the intro music. He is phenomenal. You can find Yao Jis's music all over the internet. Uh, check out his stuff. We really appreciate Yao Jis providing us with the intro music. That'll do it for this week. We'll catch you next time. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal hard. I'm yelling and screaming and I'm loud. Roar. Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on Geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even upset about anything. This holiday season, AT&T is giving away $25,000 just for telling them what great LG products you want this year. Stop by a participating AT&T store and snap a selfie holding up the LG products you want to get, like the LG V20 with 5.7-inch HD display and direct TV app to watch live TV. Then share your selfie on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag Here's What I Want Sweeps or upload it to Here's What I Want Sweeps.com for a chance to win 25 grand. No purchase necessary. Click the banner for rules and a list of participants. Participating stores.